Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, my title today is Achieving Personhood. And the idea I'm building still, I'm not going to reference uh, simply Philemon. We're going to cover several passages, but it's with our discussion of Philemon in the background and the idea the question arises as to the status not only of the personhood of Onesimus but the very definition of personhood uh, you know also uh, of Philemon himself what is a person Uh, how we answer this question you know the way that Philemon might have answered it well I'm a, a wealthy man I'm a slave master the way that Onesimus might have answered it, well, I'm a slave, and I identify myself through Philemon. And of course, we're going to see that, that we, we've already seen that's inadequate. How we Really, how we answer the question of personhood is how we see everything. Aristotle tells us that persons are rational souls. Descartes tells us that persons are thinking things uh, in the scientific model persons are reduced to their genes you know this is Richard Dawkins the uh, famous pop atheist he says we are survival machines robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes and I think he's written a book called the selfish gene Uh, In much of history, being a person is achieving status in social relationships. That was certainly true in Japan. You know, in Japan, when you meet somebody, you don't immediately uh, introduce yourself, but you get out your your, uh, card, your name card, and uh, the person thoughtfully studies your name card and notes all of the, you know, what company you work for and what your position is in the company. And then, of course, according to the card, that's how deep they bow. Oh, you're the president. I'll, you know, I'll bow very deeply. Or you're the janitor. Not so much, you know. Um, but there is then in, in Japan, and I, even Japan, I think, has been touched by a Western influence. But I, I get the sensibility, I think, there of more what it might have been like in the first century. We even had untouchables. Most people don't know this about Japan, that there is a, the Burakumin, or the, the low-caste people. They're the outcast people, very similar to what you have in India. And so to be a self in a society, in a traditional society like this, is how you're regarded by other people. And that's been true for the history of the world, that even in the time of Jesus, you know, to be recognized as a citizen meant that you were a person. Now, I'm going to say a strange thing here. That means that among humanity, persons were a minority. That there were a lot of people, but very few persons. Um, those without Roman citizenship, they had no standing uh, before the law. They were not considered persons. And, of course, slaves uh, were non-persons. So the original meaning of the Latin word, you know, persona, was mask. And may originally 
have indicated belonging to a patrician family entitled to preserve and display wax funerary effigies of their ancestors. I mean, this is true in Japan, that uh, who you are is tied up in your ancestries, in your your family name. Um, To have a, a person, that is to be a person, was to have a face before the eyes of the law. Uh, to possess the rights of a free and property citizen. That is, you, you own property. To be entrusted, you know, who could offer testimony in court? Well, only persons. Slaves? Well, maybe you would let a slave, uh, there, there would be instances when a slave might offer testimony, but usually they'd tur- torture them first just for good measure to make sure they were getting the truth. You couldn't have a woman, of course, testify in court. Uh, And and it just goes on and on. That most humans were not persons. Um, And so Onesimus uh, and the majority of individuals would have been classed as not having persons. And this is the revolutionary nature of this little letter, you know, Philemon. Just a, a few verses And we already get this strong difference in sensibility. Uh, Slaves had no privileges or rights before the law. Uh, Maybe a few meager protections, but of course that's the whole idea. Slaves were subject to crucifixion. And uh, in fact, crucifixion existed largely to keep the dominant class, keep the slaves in line. With this in mind, then, let me read, uh, I'm going to do a series of scriptures, but let's start with Romans 6, 15 to 23. What then shall we, uh, what then shall we send because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And Paul goes on to say, yes, I'm using a human metaphor here, uh, but so that you might understand the significance of what it means to be set free from sin. And so clearly the way in which personhood has been is defined, it's changed up in Christ. And what I want to say, or at least get it a a little bit today, is how it's changed up. What does it mean? Uh, It is not by some sort of high rank or social status that we achieve personhood. But of course, Christ himself, and this is another passage, look up Philippians 2, 3 to 7, that Christ himself took the form of a bondservant. He took the form of a slave. And Paul in Philippians, of course, is talking about the incarnation, but he's talking literally that he became, uh, in terms of Roman law, one of the subject peoples of Rome 
who none of whom, or, or most of whom, you know, would have had no status as persons other than those who had citizenship. Do nothing in Philippians 2, 3 to 7 from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This, is, this may sound, you know, we, we hear this so often. But these are strange words for people who say, wait a minute, if I count myself according to status, uh, you're telling me that I'm not to, I'm to take the lowly place. Humility is not a virtue in first century society. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. So, Onesimus moves from being a slave to being a son. You know, Paul calls him my son, my very heart, to being a brother. He tells Philemon, count Onesimus as your brother. But this depicts the move that we all make in redemption. The way that redemption is accomplished is that Christ took the form of a slave. So it is not simply that slavery is undone. And what I've said is I think slavery literally is undone. But the very way in which we establish personhood is transformed in Christ. So in a continual line, the New Testament depicts redemption. And of course, the word redemption, you understand, is redemption as the Jews are redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. That is the picture that we all are redeemed out of slavery from sin, but we, our personhood is to be found in being a servant, a slave of Christ. We could read, you know, you, you, we could just, the metaphor or the picture is there. Galatians is bookended. And the whole middle of the book is about this picture of our slavery. Paul opens the book, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, here's the redemptive element, so that he might rescue us, the deliverance, from this present evil age, slavery to this present evil age. And then Paul ends the book, so there is we're all redeemed, and he ends the book by describing himself having the mark of a slave of Christ. Um, from now on, cause no trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. He means I've been branded as a slave of Christ. I think he means the stripes you know, that he bore, the scars that it left. Paul considers him a, himself a slave of Christ. Now, this is a, an important concept because I think that it gets at the very nature of per, personhood. 
Christianity accomplished what Friedrich Nietzsche calls a transvaluation of all values. The world is going to be turned upside down. There is a revision of moral and conceptual categories by which human beings under themselves by our very system of values. Of course, Nietzsche doesn't think this is a good thing. He goes on to say, uh, there is a revolt of the slaves in morality. There is a slave revolt, paradoxically, paradoxically, from above. And so as Paul says, this has been accomplished by God-man becoming a slave, one willing who he willingly exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave. And only in that form did he overthrow throw the powers that reigned on high. That is, it's a bottom-up, not a top-down revolution. So perhaps we can say that it took root and grew principally in consciences rather than in political arrangements. That is, the slaves did not literally revolt. Paul is not telling Onesimus, throw off the yoke of slavery. But he's saying in the church, count Onesimus as your brother and a slave no more. And this new consciousness as we have it, I believe, you know, is reinforced. And I've said both things are necessary. It's not enough that Onesimus knows in his head he's free any more than it's enough that the Jews could they simply be freed in their minds from the slavery of Egypt no it's a literal uh, movement out of slavery I think Onesimus literally has to be you know in the church we can't have slave masters and slaves that's what Paul is saying and this is bizarre for the first century and you get this in a lot of the letters uh, in the uh, politicians uh, uh, against the Galileans Julian a fir- you know a, a politician he, he shows his contempt for the Christians he says they're vicious disreputable contemptible individuals that the Christians uh, had from the earliest d- d- days invited into their ranks and admitted with no more than a ritual bath as if water could cleanse the soul and of course he's disturbed by this they're upsetting they're undermining everything Eunapius confessed his revulsion at the base gods venerated by the church and he may be thinking here of the saints and the relics of the Christians that were preserved He said, all of them, men and women, are of the most deplorable sort, justly tortured, condemned, and executed for their crimes, but glorified after death as martyrs of the faith and accorded the devotion once reserved for the divine spirits reigning from on high. These low-class, deplorable, non-persons, are being counted as martyrs. Again, I get a bit of the sensibility from this in Japan, that 
there literally is the worship of the dead, but the dead who get mainly worshipped in Yaskuni Shrine and other places are those who are venerated for their great deeds. Um, But in Christianity, the insistence that the last be first and the first last, it's like it is one of the church's chief moral values. We see this in in the the handbook called Didascalia, which was a kind of early manual of Christian life. And it said that if a bishop is preaching and a person of high status comes into the church, he says you're not to stop anything. You're not to notice them. You just go on speaking. But he said if a a person of lowly status should come into the church, one who's poverty stricken, and should there be no room for them, the bishop is to move out of his place, offer his seat, his place, to that lowly person so that they would be made welcome. They're turning the world upside down. The first are literally made last and the last are made first. So in this sense, the pagan critics of the early church were very perceptive in seeing this new faith as subversive. And I think that's what we're seeing in the book of Philemon, that Paul is subverting slavery. He's subverting, though, the whole value system. Uh, Christianity, I don't think it was ever a, a, a revolution in the political sense, but precisely because of that, it brought about a universal change, not dependent upon the various political, you know, social, cultural situations, because in the church, the church would always overthrow, or it was meant to overthrow, the reigning social order. And this is what I've been arguing throughout on talking about Philemon, uh, that this is a change in understanding both our personhood consciously but also in community it is not that Philemon you know would simply forgive Onesimus apparently he's stolen something maybe taken some money I think the implication is that he must free Onesimus think of what this means for Philemon you know we've talked about Onesimus but think of Philemon just as Onesimus can now move from thinking of himself as, you know, he's no longer a slave, but he's he's a son, Philemon almost has to move in the opposite direction, doesn't he? He must relinquish one mode of doing identity as a person, a person of high standing, a patrician perhaps, a property owner. And now he's dispossessed in part of his wealth and Paul seems to be saying that he should be dispossessed of the very means you know slaves that's that's the sign of your wealth he must move from being a master himself to being a servant himself a slave of Christ but in Christ of course this servitude takes on a new meaning There is still the sensibility, you know, uh, Paul describes it as being a slave of righteousness, of being a servant of God. 
But what this gets at is there's a great exchange that takes place in the two kinds of servitude. Being God's slave until entails a devaluation of human modes of value. Christ himself became a slave, a servant. You know, think of, again, we've talked about the confrontation between Pilate and Christ. Pilate is the representative of the emperor. He stands as a man of noble birth, one invested with the authority of the Roman Empire. He's endowed with the sacred duty of the Pax Romana. You know, he embodies the law in a sense. He's representative of the highest pinnacle of power. And he is the very instrument of the emperor. And so his job in Israel is to subjugate this barbarous people. Prone, you know, as they are to superstition. Some of them don't even believe that the emperor is divine. They're prone to rebellion. They're prone to religious fanaticism. So there's Pilate and on the other side stands this peasant who seems deranged, demented, inciting some sort of revolt which is imponderable to Pilate. You know, what is truth? What are you talking about? It's unintelligible. It entails some sort of kingdom, not of this world. The way that David Bentley Hart has put it, no sane and educated person of late antiquity could have failed to grasp the ridiculous imbalance in this scene or to recognize which side of the picture represented the truth of all things. In the great cosmic hierarchy of rational powers descending from the highest divinity down to the lowliest of slaves, Pilate's is a particularly exalted place, a little nearer to heaven than to earth, and illumined with something of the splendor of the gods. Christ, by contrast, is no one at all. He has no natural claim on Pilate's clemency, and certainly no rights. Simply said, he has no person before the law. The one figure then commands total sway over life and death, while the other no longer belongs even to himself. And of course, we lose that sensibility because Christ has transformed our very sense of values. Uh, but the very transformation of what it means to be human is changed up. Think of the great crowds laughing at the pitiful sight of this carpenter peasant dressed up in a mock robe and crowned with thorns and the soldiers slapping him and everyone laughing, pretending he's a king. We don't laugh anymore. Let me, let me quote Hart again. For us, this figure possesses a grandeur that would have been quite invisible to our more distant ancestors. 
an ironic beauty that entirely and irrevocably reverses the mockery. It is not he who is absurd, but rather all those kings and emperors who preposterously celebrate their pedigrees and who rejoice in their power to command and to kill, and who are therefore unaware that the pompous symbols of greatness in which they drape themselves are nothing more than rags and thorns. In a sense, the figure of Christ being mocked and yet somehow impregnable to every indignity is the perfect emblem of what can be called a total humanism. In him we were afforded a vision of humanity in its widest and deepest scope, one in which the full nobility and mystery and beauty of the human countenance, the human person, wholly resides in its unique instance of our common nature. Seen thus, Christ's descent from the form of God, referencing Philippians, into the form of a slave is not a paradox at all, but an altogether apt confirmation of the indwelling of the divine image in each soul. And once the world has seen in this way, it can never again be what it once had been. End of quote. The great struggle, the all-consuming struggle in history, is summed up in this master-slave dialectic. Humankind is bent on mastery, and the form of mastery is the enslavement, the oppression of others, that my status is gained at you know the expense of others. The form which human values take, whether in a literal slave economy, as in the first century, or in a modern economy which enslaves most of the world still, is to find dignity by turning aside from the sort of shame, you know, that's represented by the cross. To never be exposed to what Christ exposed himself to. That's the thing that our world's values would buy for us. Human history, both universal and individual, is a struggle to the death in which one masters the other, only to find that lordship over the other makes recognition impossible. This is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. You know, what we're all looking for is recognition in the master-slave dialectic. But of course, once we've mastered the other and reduced his personhood to nothing, the one who would recognize us is not worthy even as a mode of recognition. This is Soren Kierkegaard, the great theologian, philosopher, thinker who opposes Hegel. He says, a herdsman, if this were possible, is only is a self only in the sight of cows, is a very low self. That is, if we do identity on the basis of our relationship. And so also is a ruler who is a self in the sight of slaves. For in both cases, the scale or measure is lacking. 
The child who hitherto has had only the parents to measure himself by becomes a self when he is a man by getting the state as a measure. That is, you move from the family to the state and in some way you imagine that your selfhood is increased. But what an infinite accent falls upon the self by getting God as a measure. This is the, you know, the way I believe that Adam and Eve originally saw themselves before the fall. They understood who they were through the eyes of God. Paul describes it, you know, that the man and the woman are one, but they are one in and through the unifying presence of God. The self is its own Lord and Master, again Soren Kierkegaard. So it is said, absolutely its own Lord and precisely this is despair. And for Kierkegaard, to despair is to be open to the possibility I'm not completely myself. But it is also what regards as its pleasure and enjoyment. However, by closer inspection, one easily ascertains that this ruler is a king without a country. He rules really over nothing. I believe that that's what Christ reveals. That we imagine that in and through our valuation system, we can escape shame and the fear of death. And of course, the slave economy is built on fear of death. The master embodies the power of death. And so the slave fears him. But the master in wielding death imagines he controls it. This is the logic which put Christ on the cross. But this is also the logic which stands behind the human system of valuation. Dealing in death, I believe, describes the human economy. And Christ annihilates this form of value in his defeat of death. He destroys the fear of death. This is what Hebrews describes in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So one can either posit an infinite power of death. And in its place, I believe, though, in Christ, we can posit the positive power of God as the driving force, uh, the, the driving force within us. The relation can be constituted as a kind of negative unity. You know, this is what Paul is describing, I believe, in Romans when he describes the body of sin or the body of death, that there's this agonistic struggle under the death and that can define you. It really is the master-slave dialectic taken up into human conscience. I am my own master, but if I'm my own master, I'm also my own slave. And that is the, the, the body of sin, the body of death. The alternative is that we can be found in Christ, and this acquires a new quality or qualification. 
in the fact that we see ourselves directly in the sight of God. We understand ourselves as the children of God, the servants of righteousness, the slaves of righteousness. This self is no longer the merely human self, but I believe we become co-participants in the Trinity. We take the place of the Son in our position before the Father. We go from being slaves to Son, but this Sonship is continually realized in light of our relationship to God in Christ. Let's sing our hymn of Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.